Hello and welcome to the Asian American Forward podcast. I'm excited to be here with Andrew Yang today. We talked a lot about you on the show, so it's a little surreal having you here. But I exist. I'm yes, real. you're in the flesh. Um, but I want to get right talking about your book, which you so kindly brought as a prop to spice up our table a little yes. bit today. <laughs> so as I was reading it, preparing for this, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is such a like flashback to all of the American politics courses I took in college. So I was curious as you were writing, if you had like an ideal audience member in mind that you were like, this is who I really want my message to reach with this new book forward. I certainly wanted people who are interested in politics to read it because I, I like to believe that I had a singular set of experiences running for president and uh, a big chunk of the book is trying to unpack those experiences to the average person uh, and I also studied a bit of political science in college and uh, the experience of being a candidate is very distinct I'd say from <laughs> whatever the textbooks said and, and uh, but also our country has evolved uh, in ways that um, I think are going to lead to very unpredictable outcomes and I think Trump's victory is one of those um, but one of the the realities I don't think people properly understand and one of the things I cite in my book is that at this point your trust in media is probably the biggest indicator of where you are politically 69% mm -hmm. of Democrats have high trust in media 15% of Republicans say they have a high trust in media I mean that's a massive gulf and then independents are right in between at 36%. So there's something going on now where there's an institutional layer that, uh, that Democrats believe in that Republicans have stopped believing in. And so because of that, I think the political events are going to seem uh, completely unexplainable or unforeseeable by someone who studied politics conventionally. Yeah, Andrew, is that I have been working with you or for you for almost three years. This book is a kind of a reflection of all the way on the campaign trail from uh, the first the first part of the presidential election, all the experience. I can reflect the every event we have to go through, all the debate. So it's the I want to focus on the first part for the presidential election and uh, especially at the very beginning and uh, how we can turn the momentum and the drive all the Asian from uh, the laughing at you and into the laughing the freedom, at you. Oh, really? <laughs> so you to take a picture. <laughs> he says it like it is. Yeah. <laughs> laughing at you. No one told me that was happening. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, you know, so I'm Asian. Probably people probably gathered that. Uh, but I told my team early on that. Uh, that there are going to be some Asians that support me immediately, but most Asians are going to be somewhat fearful that I'm going to stink and be terrible. <laughs> that, that, and it's only after I prove that I'm not terrible that the Asians will be like, oh, I'm, I'm into it. And that's something that, as an Asian American, I get, because when there's an Asian American on the scene doing something, unfortunately, your first reaction is like, oh, I hope this doesn't reflect poorly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not immediately like, oh, let me, let, let me get behind this person. So I knew that shift would uh, have to take place among people who weren't necessarily Asian, um, and then the Asian community would get very excited about it. And I had a sense of who my early adopters could be. 
Because of the nature of my message, I thought people in the technology community would get behind it, um, which was true. Uh, it overlapped with podcast audiences and uh, youngish tech savvy uh, skewing male. Um, so that was some of my early success. And then after I got some momentum, I was confident that Asian Americans would get more behind me. So one of the, the big things that you have announced or are announcing, right, is that you're starting a third party. And so I'm also really curious, as someone who's trying to bring together independents, Republicans, and Democrats, what do you think makes you the person who's like qualified to link all of those different groups, even despite all of the like polarization that you talk about a lot in your book? One of the facts that really stuck out to me when I was running for president in the home stretch was that they polled my supporters and asked how many of them were going to support the eventual Democratic nominee. And the number they found was that 42% of my supporters were not sure they were going to support the nominee, which means that they were uh, right-leaning or independent. Uh, so it's not quite 50-50, but it's pretty diverse. It's pretty high. And one of the things that I know I did in my campaign was that I activated a lot of people who weren't into politics and just sort of liked me as a different kind of figure. Um, so I think that gives me a good starting point in terms of trying to appeal to different types of voters. But the, the main thing is the same thing we just described a, a moment ago, which is that if you had a viable third party that people thought could actually contend and make real change, you would get unbelievable levels of support. Because at this point, 57% of Americans want an option that's not one of the two parties. The problem is the mechanics make it so that no third party can actually achieve that level of success and will die as soon as people get tired of losing all the time, because that's what happens if you're a third party candidate, you just lose. <laughs> that's the way the party primary is set up. So uh, the movement forward party is going to be preoccupied with trying to change the mechanics of the primary process so that they're open primaries and ranked choice voting, and then a third party could succeed and contend and maybe win. Uh, and so if you focus people on those mechanics, then anyone who wants a choice should get behind what we're trying to do, even if you don't love everything we're about. It's like, you know, it's like let's say you were a libertarian or a, a Green Party person, and you're like, oh, you know, don't, not sure about Yang, not sure about this thing. But you know what I really hate? The fact that we can't get in a ballot and we lose all the time and like there's no diversity of thought or opinion. So they could get behind this initiative just to be like, I, I want to have uh, a real choice. Um, so that, that's what I think makes me interesting and that I can draw, hopefully, in people from different alignments. Um, but the main thing that everyone's waiting for is for something that, that will work. And I've identified a mechanism that will make it work if enough of us get behind it. In terms of a timetable of the 2022 and 2024, it's the, what's your ambition for this uh, two election cycle is the, and your uh, measurement of your success for the either third party or third party forward movement? What's the, the, the picture you can envision of that the result? Well, we'll get involved in races uh, for candidates that want us to endorse and support them. Uh, and so that can be at the local level or in the national level, the state level. And it can be on either side of the aisle, which I think could, could be interesting to people. So ideally, we'd have some victories on that side. And we'll also be investing in ballot initiatives to change the mechanics of voting, uh, to open primaries and ranked choice voting. There are 24 states that have ballot initiatives that can potentially make these changes. So we'll, we'll be going after 
probably not all 24, but a, a number of them. Mm. So ideally, we'll actually have some victories uh, in 22, which is right around the corner, obviously. So there, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, sooner than we think. And since we've turned to the subject of electoral politics, I want to bring in, we have another extra special guest who's usually behind the scenes today, one of our high schoolers who helps manage the show, Angela, and she wanted to ask, we wanted to bring her in to ask you a question. So, Yeah, so first, thank you for your time. And also, um, based on your experience from the presidential election and then also the New York mayoral campaign, um, what's something that you learned that you would have done differently um, if you could have redone those two elections. Uh, between the two? Wow. It's a kind of very different. Yeah, it's very different. I would have spent more time in New York City trying to uh, make my case to the general population and less with Democratic special interest groups that, it turns out, were very much locked in on uh, other candidates because of long-standing relationships. So I spent a lot of time smoozing with people that there was like no chance they were going to come away. And then only afterwards, I was like, why did I spend all that time? That I could have been talking to anyone. Would you say that that holds true for the presidential election as well? Or do you think it's a kind of a different beast? It was a different beast. Uh, the thing I would have tried to change about the presidential would be I would have uh, tried to talk to journalists in DC more earlier because to them I was completely a stranger and then they found me um, unfamiliar uh, you know and, and if I'd spent some time with them I think I could have eased that a bit. Mm. I want to like go back to the platform of the forward party because I think also this is a good way that I, a theme I'm noticing also in just your answers today but also in the book is that Politics really is about humans and what we can do with people and in relationships. And so I was really struck by the section in your book about making what we measure. Um, and so I'm curious about how we, how, what are the practical steps that you think we need to take in order to do more of that making what you measure so that work for people who like my mom who's been a stay-at-home parent for over 20 years or like your wife Evelyn. What are the things that you're going to do to support people like that and sort of create economic value around those those things that don't necessarily get value now in society? Well, the first thing would be universal basic income, which you know helps support and value people's work, uh, even if right now the market ignores it. Um, but then it would be literally reporting every few months on basic measures like education, mental health, uh, air and water quality, uh, how the how we're delivering on these things to people because right now we're getting sucked up into essentially stock market and uh, profit quarterly statements uh, saying oh this company is rising this company is falling while our communities are generally faring quite poorly uh, and so there's this massive disconnect and even if you just forced every news outlet to be like hey quarterly report on like how the kids are doing and then they'd have to be like and <laughs> you know kids not doing well again getting really depressed because of social media, like, you know, back to the next thing. Like, you just had to report on that. Then everyone would be like, oh, maybe we should do something about that. Like, that, there's, there's a real problem in the media. Uh, and I, I picked up on this, too, when I was running for president, that I would talk in a language of facts. I'd say, hey, we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs, or uh, people's life expectancy is getting shorter, or whatever I was arguing. And it was like I was speaking another language a lot of the time. It was, uh, it's one reason why I activated, though, different types of voters, because it turns out the language of facts appeals to a particular group. <laughs> that, 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 
and uh, I mistakenly thought that, no offense to anyone, but like I mistakenly thought that the language of facts appealed to Democrats to a higher extent than it, <laughs> than it turns out that it does. Um, that, that there are real, uh, real group identity dynamics at, at play that are probably the most powerful things in politics now, more powerful than policy for sure. One of the most striking lessons in Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, is that the correlation between your political identity and your policy viewpoints really low. It turns out uh, if you got Republicans and Democrats together and said, hey, drug price is too high, they'd both be like, yes. You know, you know let's take the, the drug companies and get them down, yes. Um, and so uh, the, there's this tribalism that we have to try and reduce. Um, in an environment where, by the way, everyone gets rewarded for increasing it, which is one reason why polarization is so high. Uh, politicians get rewarded for it. Media organizations get rewarded for it. Social media organizations get rewarded for it. So we're not going to see it get any better. It's just going to keep getting worse uh, unless we do something dramatic, like have a middle force that can change the process, stand for grace and tolerance, be this inclusive middle that a lot of Americans are waiting for. Yep. The, the follow follow this question in your book is the third section is that there's a several the uh, reform you want to take action. So in terms of uh, in your political philosophy or its action as a CEO, when you uh, exercise the, the the reform, which issue you think is the either at the top priority can change the entire system, or is a low hanging fruit food. Which one you, you pick, like a term limit and uh, rank choice of voting system, and also the reform of the Supreme Court, and which one you think is uh, easy, or is, uh, in your mind, which one you want to exercise? The, the most fundamentally transformative one would be open primaries and rank choice voting, mm -hmm. because right now, lawmakers respond to the 20% most extreme voters in their district, who tend to be a little bit wacky, <laughs> honestly. Uh, and and so if, if you changed it so they had to appeal to 51% overnight, you'd see them become more reasonable. So that's the big one. It's difficult, but achievable, but fundamentally transformative. That has to be the reform we chase. Mm -hmm. In terms of low-hanging fruit, something you could see get done, I am going to make a case for term limits. Uh, and I, I think there's a clever way we can do it where legislators are themselves exempt. Because asking legislators to fire themselves is obviously not going to happen. Uh, but if you say, hey, how about term limits for everyone who comes after you? Uh, then they'd be like, oh, sure. I can be like the person who stays forever in the high school and then like everyone else to show up. Um, because one of the problems we have is that America is run by very old people. Uh, I have nothing against older people, but uh, it's very possible that we could see an 81-year-old versus a 77-year-old for president uh, this coming cycle. The, the average uh, legislators around 60, at least at a national level. And so if you ask them to try and address what's going on with social media, a lot of them haven't even read an email, you know what I mean, like, like themselves, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, and they've been in office for decades. So uh, it's one reason why they're unlikely to have read an email, because if you've been a member of Congress for a long time, then you You've got people, someone to do that for you. you got someone yeah. that's like trying to manage stuff. So... Uh, so term limits is a, an elegant way to uh, modernize the government. And there, there is a manner you could pass it where it doesn't hurt the current legislators. 
Well, but you, also well, I want to say too that yeah. that seventy five percent of Americans favor term limits because we instinctively sense it would be positive, and mm-hmm. so so the counter argument is kind of like no, it's great, and we're like wait three out of four people <laughs> kind of think it's not great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, but before we let you go, I do want to ask one question since we have ended up talking so much about electoral politics, twenty twenty two is coming up faster than we think. And you've also done some work for CNN. So you know all about the color changing maps. I'm wondering what color will forward be on the maps in some future date? What color do you want to be represented by? So the logical thing would be purple. Right. Because it's kind of red and blue together. Uh, So that's probably what forward will be. In terms of our official colors, um, I'm going to give some news away right now. Oh. But but the, the forward colors are red, white, and blue. <laughs> I you know I, I don't know if that's like a news flash for anyone. Um, I, I will have some fun with this though because uh, some people thought well purple should be the color. Yeah. Um, and purple was the color of uh, the Reform Party, which was like another third party. Um, but I looked at purple as a design, and I was like, eh, you weren't feeling the purple. Like, yeah, I wasn't feeling the purple. There was someone actually who was really arguing for the purple, and but even their argument was not that great. Here's their argument. This will be fun for you. They they said something like purple is, you know, like, like the third favorite color of like you know like seventy percent of men or something like that. And then I was like, what's the first favorite color? And they were like, blue. (laughs) 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 I was like, so why not choose number one instead of number three? So it it was it was a funny discussion. But um, but yeah, we we would probably be purple. You know, if the networks were feeling really, um, you know, messed up, maybe they'd make us yellow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, that seems aggressive. I feel like purple's the move. Well, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Asian Americans Forward Podcast <laughs> with Don Sun and Katie and sometimes Andrew Yang. Asian Americans Forward, Forward, Forward.